This is That's Not a Story, a five-part podcast on what makes journalists tick and the world they work in. By the end of this series, you should have a good understanding of the challenges facing the media and why or why not a journalist might be interested in the stories you have to tell. I'm Rachel Williamson. I'm a foreign correspondent in journalism rehab, and I actively enjoy breaking unsolicited embargoes. And I'm Karis Palmer. I'm a journalism idealist, and I like to found media companies in my spare time. Welcome to our first episode, Journalists Are Weird. Or to put it another way, understanding your target so you don't stuff up your media journey at the first hurdle. In this episode, we are going to demystify what makes journalists tick and what motivates them. By the end, you should have a better understanding of the person you want to tell your story. If you meet a journalist, you probably won't think they're weird at the start. But having worked and, let's face it, been friends with a lot of them, I know that they can be difficult friends. They're consistently blunt and they get bored easily. A friend of mine who used to work at a regional newspaper told me a pretty funny story the other day. They all went along to a press conference at a prison. It was pretty boring. It was an announcement, not that exciting. So to kill time, they ducked around the back with their photographer and started staging photos of a reporter jumping over the fence. Bit of a staged escape. They all thought it was hilarious until the loudspeaker came on. This is not a drill. And then they saw the armed guards in a Humvee headed straight for them. (laughs) Does it make me weird that I think that's brilliant? (laughs) I might be biased, but journalism is the best job in the world. But the pay is shite and people actively don't like you. Yet I'm constantly surprised by how many people are intrigued by what journalists do. So Rachel, why do people go into journalism? Well, it's a calling really, isn't it? People do it because they want the excitement and prestige of a foreign correspondent gig, or they want to uncover conspiracies like Watergate or the Catholic Church pedophilia scandals. And these motivations are absolutely true. But if you boil it down, there are some very human drivers behind it. We've named ego, the thrill of the chase, and gossip. Ego is seeing your name at the top of a great story. And it's also knowing you have access to the most important and influential people in the room. (laughs) So basically you're saying journalists were nerds as kids and now they get to play with the cool kids. So the next is the thrill of the chase or the dogged pursuit of a story that you feel is important. That normally means no one will read the story, but that's okay. It's your own mini Watergate. To be a good journalist, you need to love this. And then there's gossip. Mm. Most of journalism is just repeating news you've heard first. It's the equivalent of professionalised water cooler chat. So that's generally what motivates journalists, because it certainly isn't the pay, is it, Karis? Correct. The average early career journo is on around $55,000 a year. And those with between five to 10 years experience are going to be on around 75,000 or less. One PR friend recently told me she could make the same money working two days a week. And in fact, I'm a little embarrassed to say, but I took on my first job in a newsroom while still running my own business for $35,000 a year. That is ridiculous. But I know that you, I also know that you did it to get a foot in the door and that it worked. And I guess that's one reason why salaries are so consistently low. So media companies with cost pressures can get away with paying low salaries because the competition's so fierce. 
when I ran the internship program at The Conversation, we'd get around 50 to 100 applicants for every quarterly round. We'd take on 12 interns and they were unpaid and had to work three months. That level of competition, it just makes people more mercenary. Um, that's something I've noticed over my time hiring journalists and they've had to get better at selling themselves rather than just relying on a masthead that they could work for for a long period of time. And also there's just more freelancers. Well, at least freelancers get to avoid the shouty newsroom. There's only one place more shouty than a newsroom, and that is a restaurant kitchen. Because this is a fucking laughing stop. This is a, this is a fucking, this is a piss take. Get with it, dickhead. Super Tim Adhikari, or Soups as we like to call him, is the deputy editor of the Age business section. He used to be a chef at Attica, yes, the Attica, before switching careers. He still spends all of his free time cooking, as shown by the constant food pics on his Facebook. Hi, Soups. Thanks for joining us today. Great to be here. You took a really unusual route into journalism. Can you tell us how you did it? Uh, yeah. So I did have a pretty, uh, well, a very roundabout way of getting into journalism. I mean, I came to Australia in 1999 and I did uh, do a journalism course. Uh, and because I wasn't a permanent resident and my visa status uh, did make it very hard for me to get on the ground experience. So when I did eventually move to Melbourne, it was very difficult for me to get into the industry. So as you do, you go into some sort of, you know, vocation, temporary vocation to pay the bills. And, and it just so happened to be that I walked into a kitchen. I mean, I could have easily walked, uh, started driving cabs or worked at a 7-Eleven, but I walked into a kitchen and I was able to cook in some of the big restaurants in Melbourne. And uh, so I worked at Circa the Prince and I learned some of the basics there. And then after that, I worked at Attica and it taught me a lot of things, I would say, that have certainly helped me later on as I worked in a newsroom. What did you learn from your time in the kitchen that is applicable to a newsroom? Well, one was discipline, which is very important. So good kitchens uh, rely on discipline and you have to have a disciplined mind and you have to be willing to, uh, you know, put a lot of hours in. You've got to do a lot of contingency planning. So that, I think, again, is something that's very applicable in a newsroom or I think applicable in any management sense. You must have contingencies. You must be able to see how you can use the existing capacity you have with your personnel, for example. You would have days in kitchens where you've got 100 people coming for dinner and two of your chefs don't show up. Why? Because they're sick. So it's no, no different to you've got three people off the books in your newsroom because you know, there's uh, uh, school holidays, there's people on big accrued leaves, so they need to take some time off. And then you've got massive news breaking, right? So you have to be able to quickly deploy and be able to adjust and say, look, you know what, we're going to make, the, we're gonna make this work. So what made you move from cooking back to journalism? Oh, it was a fairly chance thing, you know. So I was working at Attica. We were sort of aspiring. I think we were shooing to win our second hat. So we were all pretty, you know, very happy about that. And I think I was gaining enough confidence to feel that I could make a career out of this. Uh, obviously, working with Ben Shuri was a great thing and it was opening doors. And I knew there was a possibility that it would open doors for me if I wanted to do it seriously. So I'd set myself a goal that, uh, you, you know, if journalism is not going to happen, and that's fine, I've got to do this seriously and I've got to have some goals. So, you know, five years from now, I need to be a head chef somewhere. But as it turned out, you know, um, my parents came for a visit and uh, we had a conversation. And I mean, you know, they were 
I won't say they were thrilled that I was cooking for a living, but they were very happy that I was taking it seriously, you know. And then I remember I had a conversation with my father who said, well, look, you know, cooking's going great. You're working with good people, but don't you, do you want to not do journalism anymore? Have you given up on that? And I think I sort of told him at the time that, well, look, you know, it's kind of hard because you've got to invest time in it. You know, I can't just drop everything and do a, a internship somewhere and work for free for six weeks because I've got to pay the bills. Uh, and and uh, the conversation then sort of came to where, you know, we said, all right, look, why don't you give it one, one, sh- one last shot? And, and if it's done, and if it happens, it happens. And if it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, you've got the kitchen. You can work, you know. And I had that conversation with Ben as well at Attica. I said, look, I need to take this winter off or I'm going to work very small, few shifts and I'm going to put some applications out there. Uh, and, 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 you know, he was very, very open to that. He says, look, mate, do it. If it works, great. Otherwise, just come back. So, yes, I did sign up for Business Spectator. Obviously, I didn't know it was Business Spectator at the time. But, I mean, I've essentially replicated the same pathway that I had through kitchens in Melbourne, in a professional kitchen, I replicated exactly the same template, you know, just work hard, like just really put in the, put in the hard yards, do what needs to be done, do the best. Super, so you went you on, you know, to a successful career in, in media at The Australian and now at The Age, what keeps you in it? Because you probably still have that safety net of going back to cooking. <laughs> What keeps you well, in I don't know. After COVID, maybe not so much. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if restaurants will survive. But uh, uh, hey, look, I gotta say the one thing for me is I still get quite. I know. I mean, I still feel really good when I see my name in a printed product. You know, I love seeing my name on it. And I guess in a way, there might there's a couple of things going on there, and some of it's obviously vanity as well. You know, I love the I love that feeling of seeing my name there, and I guess. You know, and, and, and I had points in my life where I thought, you know what, this stuff's not going to work out. Every time I see my name there, I do feel a bit that, you know, we did make it happen. So it's nice, you know, pretty blessed. I think it's an incredibly, incredibly privileged profession. Um, and, and to me, that's what keeps me going. That I think when there are days where I feel overworked or I feel overwhelmed, I think I just tell myself that, that what I'm doing is an, is, is an incredible privileged job. The fact that you're paid to write and you're paid well. Uh, so, you know, I want to do it for as long as it's possible, really. So, Soups, what does a modern journalist actually look like these days? Experienced people, people quite set in their ways, mm-hmm. but also young people. Uh, a lot of young journalists who are coming from having spent some time in the online media and now trying to make that transition so that's, uh, that's quite interesting. You know, you do get a mix of people, different skill sets and different weaknesses and strengths. And there is a, you know, given that issue of diversity in newsrooms, I think there is something to be said that, yes, our newsrooms today are not diverse. They don't, uh, uh, you know, walking into any average newsroom in this country will not give you a cross-section of this society. So I mean, even a simple issue as uh, the fact that you have to go and do internships. To me, I think that's always the the salient point here. Now, if someone, a migrant like myself, back in 2006, simply didn't have the option to say, you know what, I'm going to go and work three months for free because it's going to open doors for me. Now, this has nothing to do with my merit or my skills or whether I can hack it or whether I can write or not. That option simply didn't exist for me because 
I don't have money. Supra, you, ha- you know, and I have watched a lot of journalists come into the industry and get one of those privileged spots and then, you know, by the time they hit their 30s, they want to buy a house, you know, they've got kids maybe and they leave or they, you know, they, they pursue a different career path. I'm interested in your thoughts on what is it you think that, you know, how do you spot someone who's going to stay versus someone who's there, just, you know, enjoys it for a while and then leaves? I think those who are able to stay in it are people who are able to, I think, move past just the pure production of copy. You have to be bold enough to put your hand up and either become a specialist, you know, in the sense that you, you build enough of a personal brand where your words have real value and weight or you say, look, I want to take a managerial pathway. And you know what? In a newsroom, managing people is just not very glamorous at all because it's managing, juggling idiotic rosters. It's about managing commercial pressures. It's about having to answer to people and editorial when people make mistakes. And, you know, every day, every newspaper, I can tell you between 6 to 10 o'clock every evening is just mayhem. There's mistakes happening every day, every second, and there's people just whose job is to clean it up. So when we pick up the printed product in the morning, those of us who still do, I don't think we recognize what has gone into that work. It's a ton of work, and it's a lot of people ripping their hair out at, at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock in the evening. We're saying, oh, where, where's, where's the copy? Where are the plates? Oh, my God, there's a mistake, and there's a typo in the headline on page one. You know, so you got to be able to manage all of that. And that's that's how you work your way up in a media organization. This idea. Well, you know, I mean, it's that or you become so, so accomplished in what you do, in what you write about. And your word has so much weight to it that you'll be paid a lot of money to write for it. Right. And that takes a lot of work. I don't think, again, not everyone is built for that pathway. You know, either you have something special or you have to have a very thick skin. You have to be very adaptable and be able to, you know, be able to ride out the peaks and troughs of what this industry brings. Right. Because you are you do become your personal brand matters. You, you are uh, subjected to a lot of, you know, external criticism and internal criticism. Uh, newsrooms, by their very nature, are incredibly political places. I mean, look, all, all, all places are. And in fact, some, the sort of people who gravitate towards newsrooms and, and sort of leadership positions there are inherently have a great feel, you know, uh, they do understand politics and it's a part of their you know, nature to do that, right? And so perhaps you could give us three points on how to understand journalists better. In journalism is, is not always about idealism or ideology. Uh, if you're trying to work with a journalist, the number one thing is the sell. And believe me, that's the only thing people care about, the sell. As a journalist, as you hand a journalist a story, what you need to think about it is, is this journalist now going to be able to sell this to their editor who can then sell it to their higher-ups as well? Because without the sell, it's nothing, right? So you've got to have that. That's got to be the number one thing. What is my sell? So this is the whole thing. When you're working and you're pitching to mainstream media journalists, you got to think about the cell. You got to think about. You got to be as open and as well read and as well researched as you can be. And the other thing is, as I was mentioning earlier, is you got to think about what comes next. It's not about just the story. It's about what happens next. 
Thanks for joining us, Soups. So what does all of this mean for you? Flattery goes a long way. Don't assume that because a person works for the Australian or the Guardian they think a certain way, because they're all likely to have come from similar backgrounds. And the nature of the job means that people just get weird the longer they're doing it. The politics of the newsroom, as Supra said, dealing with influential people, the public personal criticism and the need to be really tenacious, it can make people a bit odd. So thanks for listening. Next episode, we will delve into how the news sausage is made with successful PR Harrison Polites going head-to-head with Walkley Award-winning investigative journalist Sarah Dankett. You've been listening to That's Not a Story with Rachel Williamson and Karis Palmer. Our theme music is by MBB.